Welcome. It is Saturday morning, September 11th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. We took last week off in case you missed us. It was Labor Day after all, but we are back here and we have a great issue of Airmail. This is such a tough week because obviously we've got a somber vibe today. We It's September 11th, the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Not like any of you need the reminder, but we do have a look back at that moment and also a look forward to its repercussions. It's our view from here this week by Elliot Ackerman, who is a novelist, but he's a former Marine and intelligence officer who served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan during the wars over there. And as we sort of put on the headline of the piece this week, it's how soon we forgot, never forget. And as he writes in the opening of his piece, he said there was a joke, a bit of gallows humor that made the rounds when he was serving in Afghanistan. And it went like this, knock, knock, who's there? 9-11, 9-11 who? Hey, I thought you'd said you'd never forget. And as Elliot says, and he you know looks back at not just the 20 years we've spent as a country there, but also the past few weeks of the withdrawal, however messy that has been from Kabul and Afghanistan and the evacuees left behind and what to do going forward. But he does also end on a somewhat optimistic note and believing, hoping that 20 years from now, he hopes we will not have forgotten this moment and that the choices we make over the last few weeks are not who we are but that we can learn from this and go forward. Well, that's a relatively hopeful note to end that topic on, Michael. And that's what I like about Elliot's piece so much and also about his style and ethos as a writer. Yeah, it's a great piece written by someone, as I said, who served and has a unique perspective and powerful perspective on 20 years of war and, as I said, what happened in the last few weeks. Michael, and we also have a story in the issue about the inner workings of Guantanamo Bay. And spoiler alert, it's more deranged and problematic than you ever even imagined. Yeah, I think what's it's almost a counter note to Elliot's piece where so many Americans have kind of moved on from those days of never forget and, and seem to have existed for the last 20 years with varying degrees of remembering. As I always say, what's fascinating is I saw the statistic recently that 25% of Americans were not born, were not alive on 9-11. Guantanamo, in, in many ways, is a crucible for the entire 9-11 slash Afghanistan experience. And in Claire McDougall's story, she takes a look at how the inner workings of this place manage to crush everyone it touches, whether it's a guard or a detainee. And there's a new book about the matter by Mansour Adafi, who has written a new memoir called Don't Forget Us Here, Lost and Found in Guantanamo. He spent 14 years at the prison, which at one point was holding 780 men accused by the U.S. of being connected to al-Qaeda and the September 11th attacks, often with scant evidence evidence. Uh, George W. Bush opened it. Obama tried to close it. Trump vowed to, quote, load it up with bad dudes. But following a disastrous retreat from Afghanistan, Biden is now tasked with closing the prison, which is rolling into its 20th year with 39 prisoners. So many of these stories are hard to read, Michael. And reality in many ways is a place we often need to escape from, which is why literature is so important. And I think that also explains why we're seeing this fervor around a new book by Sally Rooney. It's called Beautiful People, Where Are You? And it just came out on Tuesday. And the American public is treating this book with the fervor and excitement that is usually reserved for television shows and films. Yeah, no surprise. It's the first big book of the fall season. And you're right. It, it is being treated with the fervor of a movie release because Sally Rooney, if you ever saw the Hulu show Normal People, which had big audience during lockdown, she's kind of straddles both worlds. Her books become 
great film slash limited series adaptations and they sort of they become a, this wonderful circle for her but it's a great book this week and we've got to look at it from Cassie David, right? Spoiler alert, Cassie does not like it. She finds the characters completely unbearable, but that is not going to stop us from reading it. But it seems like Cassie, who is of the generation, finds these people a little annoying, right? Full disclaimer, Cassie doesn't like many people. This is not an unusual phenomenon for her. I like the book. I'm about a third of the way through it. Maybe it will change my life. Maybe it won't. But what I can tell you is I do like the way Sally Rooney writes prose. It's very sparse and objective. Dare I say Hemingway-like? That's going to offend some people in the audience, but I'll say it anyway. I find her characters a little unbearable too, but you know what? A lot of people are unbearable. It's totally fine. We can still enjoy them in literature and learn something from them, perhaps. Michael, it's a page-turner, and as we are re-entering society and the world after a lovely summer, I do need a bit of a distraction, and I'll take it in any form I can get. Looks like you've got it in Sally Rooney. Love you, Sally. Speaking of abnormal people, and we have got two pieces this week by the kind of Tweedledee and Tweedledum of European royalty. One being Prince Charles in the UK and the other being Prince Albert in Monaco, right? It's kind of a twofer of doofus behavior this week, right? So it turns out that Prince Charles does have a couple skeletons in his closet as yet another scandal rocks the British monarchy. So Prince Charles's closest aide has been accused of, oops, trading knighthoods for charity donations. It happens all the time. Yeah, he was sort of caught. But, you know, what's, what's First of all, what's, what's shocking about this is like, you would think with Prince Philip dead, Prince Andrew hiding from sex lawsuits, and Prince Harry lobbing bombs from across the pond, as Stu Her- Heritage says, the British royal family would be, they might look for a true figurehead who can cut through all the grime and pettiness and lead the country by the power of the virtue alone. Unfortunately, they have Charles right now. And Charles, as you said, is sort of caught in this. And to be clear, no one is saying Charles has done anything wrong. It's just his foundation, which is... The Prince's Foundation, which, as Stu says, it unhelpfully described itself as providing, quote, holistic solutions to challenges facing the world today. Well, turns out one of the challenges seems to be that Charles likes to get other people to pay or maybe someone associated with him to get to renovate his homes. So it turns out that the donor in question is a tycoon and son of one of Saudi Arabia's richest men, Mahfouz Mareh Mubarak bin Mahfouz. And if you kind of go through some of his homes, Charles's homes, he has a fountain that's now named after Mahfouz. In return, he was granted a number of meetings with Prince Charles. It's an extraordinary lapse of judgment, and right now the person being kind of hung out for it is uh, Michael Fawcett, who is the charity's chief executive. But prior to that, he was Charles' former valet, whose roles once included squeezing Prince Charles's toothpaste and, when required, holding his specimen bottles as they were filled with royal urine. So you might say he has an intimate relationship with Charles and is used to kind of cleaning up after him, but it's not looking good for his prince's trust, not the trust people have in him, but maybe that as well. This should make for an interesting episode of season 18 of The Crown. We can only hope, right? Well, speaking of money, access, and royals, let's move on down to Monaco and the drama unfolding between Prince Albert and his bride, Charlene. Exactly. Prince Albert in a can might be for this week. So where do we begin? Do we begin with their wedding in 2011, which is a three-day celebration when Albert, who at that point was in his mid-50s and needed to marry because he needed to produce an heir in order to keep Monaco independent. So he lands on a woman named... Charlene Whitstock. And Charlene Whitstock was then an Olympic swimmer who seemed to fit the bill happily enough, right? She shared his love of sport, in conservation, right? Seemed like a good wedding, right? Except what happened on the wedding day, Ashley? 
Well, unfortunately, there were all these rumors that he was having affairs and she cried. And apparently she tried to flee to her native South Africa before she was hauled back to the wedding by senior palace officials as she was going to the Nice airport. Oops. The couple slept in separate bedrooms on their wedding night, 10 miles apart. And it's been sort of a mixed bag ever since. But then rumors of their imminent demise happened in January of this year when Princess Charlene dropped out of an official visit to see President Macron at the Ilise Palace at the very last minute. By May, she had flown home to South Africa without Albert or her two children, and she had planned to stay for 10 or 12 days. But soon a mysterious sinus infection appeared, and that forbade her from returning home, something to do with the altitude of the airplane, etc., etc. She has not set foot in Monaco since, even for the noisy Monaco Grand Prix and the splashy Red Cross Ball. Kel Scandal. Kel Scandal. So Prince Albert has done everything in his powers to squash this. He even posted a very sappy video montage on Instagram about their love story that was, I think, tied around to their anniversary this, earlier this year. But now it's really looking like she has no plans to return to Monaco. And what's the latest and greatest? Well, so it seems now it's got everyone in Monaco chitter-chattering that Albert is the latest sort of victim of the Grimaldi curse, which is that to deny any member of the royal family a happy marriage to the royal line. It's sort of most famous victim, if you want to believe in the curse, was Albert's mother, Grace Kelly. But, you know, Albert's always been kind of, as Joseph says, the bachelor prince Eeyore ever since his college days at Amherst. Now, Look, Monaco, as A.A. Gill once memorably described it, it's a waiting room for purgatory. But as Joseph says, for Charlene, it seems to have been a sun lounger in hell. So where this goes and how it plays out remains to be seen, right? It's a complicated mess right now, right? Indeed. You know who can't hide right now? Tell me. Do you know about the Murdoch family in South Carolina? Oh, a Southern Gothic story for the ages. Tell us more. So talk about scandal and crime. This week, we have a terrific roundup by George Kaljarakis looking at, and this is a story which, if you're like me, you may have seen it out of the corner of your eye and been like, this is a Southern Gothic story that I just can't keep up with. I can't keep it straight. So read this week's piece by George. He pulls it all together. And if you've been sort of seeing bits of it in your scroll, basically to pull it all together, the Murdoch's are a very prominent, very powerful South Carolina family that has recently suffered a a series of bizarre, tragic, and altogether baffling incidents which have left uh, more than a few people dead. And the most recent incident involved last Saturday Richard Alex Murdoch, who is the lawyer and head of the family. He was shot in the head by the, the side of the road. He survived, but previously his wife and son were found murdered at home back in June Murdoch returned to his 17-acre hunting lodge property in a small town west of Charleston to find his wife and son dead of multiple gunshot wounds. At the time of his death, his son Paul was out on bail awaiting trial for the death of a woman named Mallory Beach who was killed in a moating mishap when he was driving. So, you've got that. Then, a few years earlier, their 57-year-old housekeeper died as a result of a, a, quote, trip and fall. That's never really been solved. And two weeks after the double murders, the New York Times reported that the state police agency was investigating the Murdoch killings. And they learned something, but they won't say what. So this is like midnight in the garden of South Carolina, good and evil, right? It's time to sell the movie rights. It is a big mess and a big mystery. And it's, you know, there's already a podcast cooking on it, of course, because it's a true crime. But 
read this week's story by George and you will be hooked. All right. Well, okay, Michael, we have one of the most intoxicating personalities in contemporary American culture on trial this week. Theranos founder, Charlene and Grifter, Elizabeth Holmes is being taken to task for what, Michael? Deceit, fraud, mismanagement of a business, all kinds of tawdry details are coming out as she enters a courtroom in California. We have Rich Crone chronicling the case, reporting on it as it comes down, and he's going to join us here to talk about the big picture questions that will unfold as the Elizabeth Holmes trial begins. All right, Rich, welcome to Morning Meeting. We're so happy to have you here. What on earth is going on with our obsession, our long-term obsession, Elizabeth Holmes? I don't know. I was thinking of that about that myself. Like, what is it about her? I think she sort of is a parable or whatever, represents the idea that all this technology and all the internet stuff is kind of a big giant fraud in a way. Like the idea that you can have one drop of blood and tell everything that's wrong with you is like an old Dick Gregory joke I heard about 30 years ago. So I think that the idea that this person who was a dropout of Stanford and with no background in science was able to go out and get George Shultz and Henry Kissinger and all these guys to buy into this thing that didn't really even stand up to a lot of common sense just sort of represents the whole thing, which seems like kind of a big false front, if that makes sense. What you say in your piece, Richard, you mind is that, you know, she got this insane valuation for Theranos based on, uh, you know, what seemed like a crazy idea, which is like, what if I told you you could do a blood sample and all I need to do is get one drop of blood from your finger, and yet here she comes along, she gets this valuation, and but now uh, this trial and the fraud around it has Silicon Valley and a lot of people sweating, if not blood, serious sweat, right? Yeah, well, I always think about this. First of all, I went to Tulane. If as a Tulane dropout, I approach people, they would not listen to me. So I think it has a lot to do with wherever you go. You really see the importance of the credential, the importance of where she went to school, even though she dropped out. The other thing is the $9 billion valuation. You always have a sense when you read these valuations, this doesn't make any sense. Because like you said, they're being valued on their potential. And that's a lot of the economy right now. If you see if you're a fan of sports, you see people being paid, rookies in these leagues being paid for something that they haven't proved they can even do yet. And that's why a lot of older players in those leagues get upset by it because they don't get paid for what they have done and people get paid for what they potentially could do. And you see that all over the economy. And I think with her case, it's like this idea that one, these companies cannot be worth what they're said to be worth, that it's the whole thing is kind of it's artificial and it, and, it, and it can fall apart. And then the other thing is you have the way that the even the most powerful old guys in our society just feel powerless when presented with any kind of new magical technology, which means that they didn't have she didn't have to explain it to them. She just had a, it really was like a magic box. You put it in this magic box and this thing's going to happen and you won't understand it. So don't ask too much about it, but we're all going to make a billion dollars. And the fact is she was solving a problem. This is also a lot of the new economy. She was solving a problem that really did not exist, which is, yeah, it sucks to give blood. Nobody likes to give blood, but it's not a giant deal to go in and give blood. But she had figured out your sort of most primal fear as a kid which is you don't want anyone to take blood or stick a needle in your arm and sort of said, well, what if we could find a way to not do that? The only thing that she was missing is the way to actually not do that. But she sold it on how good it would be if you didn't have to give blood anymore. And I think at the 
core, it's as simple as that. It's like, wouldn't you like to never have to go to a doctor's office and give blood again? I would like that. Wouldn't you like never have to go to the doctor again and go through a physical? I would like that. And, and sort of she sold that promise with this new technology that literally was like a black box. So, Rich, why exactly did she get taken to task? I mean, why is she in this precarious legal situation? Why is she going to trial? Walk us through exactly how she screwed up in the eyes of the law. Well, it's not amazing to me why she's finally taken to task. What's amazing is how long she was able to keep it going. It's like the Bernie Madoff thing kept it going, his scheme going for so many years. Seems like the thing should collapse. She was basically selling a product that didn't work. She was covering it by using the old medicine which is the old machines and old tests in ineffective ways. She would take a drop of blood and dilute it, not her personally, but her company. And basically, I think the the big turning point was when they went from this selling this idea to actually testing it on patients, having patients or, you know, people, their doctors wanted to give blood, go take these tests. And the people at the company who were doing this started to feel guilt and also They started to feel bad about it. And this could result in somebody getting very sick or dying. And I don't want that on me. And when they started to complain about it, they fired him. And and she pissed off enough of those people and scared enough of them. There started to be anonymous complaints. And it took someone, the Wall Street Journal reporter, really, but to take the complaint seriously and look into it. And once you kicked at it, it, the whole thing just fell in and it caved in because at the core of it was a product that didn't work. It was as simple as that. Rich, one of the questions you ask in your piece, and just to remind listeners, Rich is going to be covering the trial for as long as it lasts. So, uh, you know, it, it will have ample opportunity to raise a lot of questions. But one of the key questions you ask is, uh, was Elizabeth Holmes a fraud from the start? Or did she begin with good intentions only to lose herself in a maze? And I'm just curious, how would you answer that question right here, right now at the beginning of the trial? I don't think she was a fraud from the start. I think in her head, it's just my opinion. She probably thought if she'd been given another couple years, they would have gotten there, that they were close. And I think she had convinced herself that this thing was possible and she was selling it and she thought she was doing what they do in that business, which is the stuff I'm talking about, which is you got to get the money to get the product and you sell the product before it exists and it can't really be done. So I think that she probably always thought that she was on the verge of getting there and she probably feels very sorry for herself and felt that if she'd been left alone, you know, Steve Jobs had all this trouble and his product didn't this and his product didn't that. Of course, the difference is she's dealing with medical tests where making a mistake is has much more dire consequences. And as a result, it's much more regulated. So there's much more room for sort of they say fake until you make it. But basically, it's kind of lying until you figure out how to do it. The thing is, like coming up with the idea. I know this, I believe, as a writer or anything creative, which is what she was doing. Coming up with the idea is actually the easy part. The hard part is the execution. And she had an idea that was an intuitive idea. Wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to go to the doctor's office and give three vials of blood? And the execution was never there because to this date, it's impossible. What I find funny is when they tell her bio, they always start with the fact that she's been really inventive since she was a kid. And she's always been creative. And they talk about how when she was six or seven years old, she created a very detailed design for a time machine. Well, Theranos is like a time machine. You see, you can't build a time machine because time travel isn't possible. And that was her first invention. You know, it's like, it is like a kid when you think, oh, wouldn't it be great if you could do this? I, I had somebody once told me, wouldn't it be great if you can invent a, an app on your phone that could tell you if you had Lyme disease? That would be great. 
and you would make a lot of money, but that can't be done at the moment. And I think that's what she was doing. She was involved in wishful thinking. There was also an interesting bit of news that came out a few days ago, which is that uh, some documents were unsealed, and it seems as though Elizabeth Holmes is going to claim that her former boyfriend, who was uh, uh, worked at the company, may have abused her, or she claim, may claim that she, he abused her. Now, this casts an interesting light on perhaps a defense strategy, right? Well, it's interesting because, first of all, my wife, my brother, and my sister, all prosecutors, okay? So based on my experience of watching them do their jobs, I know that her case seems impossible to me. There's so much video evidence of her selling this thing in ways that she knew wasn't true that all I can think is she must believe that she, if she gets through a jury, in front of a jury, she could sell them the way that she sold her company. Now, the thing is, one of the things about her that was held up is she was the first woman to create a company with a billion dollar valuation. Um, and she was held up as a kind of a role model. And now and it's a strong person with a dream that she made come true. And now in an attempt to get, it seems like her lawyers are going to present her as a person who was being used and was weak and was a victim. So it's such a head-snapping change of image. And what they're going to say is, it seems like, is her boyfriend, who, you know, he was 19 years older than her and supposedly worth many, many millions of dollars. So there was a, an imbalance there. But her boyfriend was using her as sort of a front, a front person to, to work all the gears. And it just, it's a, it just goes so against the way she's presented herself from the beginning that I, I don't know how it works. And we'll see. It's interesting. But, um, you know, when people are in trouble, they'll do just about anything to get out of it. Rich, am I the only one that's shallow enough to be most excited to see the return of the black turtleneck? Will we see the return of the black turtleneck? Will we hear the deep voice like now that she's been exposed for the reasons behind she's doing all those things? Like, I think part of the reason she has this cult of personality around her is because she cultivated it so obsessively, right? People bought into the uh, mythology of Elizabeth Holmes as much as they bought into Theranos. Yeah, she sort of became what she knew investors wanted. So she's a storyteller is what she really is. And she told them a really great story. And that was, you've just found Steve Jobs at age 27. But Steve Jobs dropped out of Reed College, I think. She dropped out of Stanford. She has an idea that's going to change the world. And you have a chance to be one of the first 10 people who invest in Apple. And that's the story that she sold. And part of that was her voice, which is very deep. And apparently that's not really her, always been her voice. So and I don't know why that thought she, it gave her greater authority, but maybe she did. And then the turtlenecks, which seems like they came in as a specific sort of copying of Steve Jobs and like it was something that was suggested to her by a publicist. I think you'll still hear the deep voice because how do you change your voice and not come off as incredibly phony? I mean, if they go into court and they're showing video of her speaking like she's, you know, Lou Rawls, and then she starts talking and she has a totally different voice, that doesn't work. But I think you'll never see her wear another turtleneck again in her entire life. That's my guess. She married a guy named William Evans, who's the heir to a hotel fortune. She had their son in July. She's a new mom. What do we know about Elizabeth Holmes in her personal life right now and what that's been like for the past few years as she's been relatively under the radar? I'm not exactly sure. I do know that people have been pontificating, not me because I don't know about it, that her having a child when she did is almost like meant for the jury to present herself as a young mother and get a kind of sympathy. I don't know if that's true, but I do know that if she's convicted 
and goes to prison, she's looking at 20 years in prison. And that would be that entire child's growing up. So she's now put this other person, her child, in a position of growing up possibly without a parent. So it's she's a complicated, interesting person. And that's part of what makes this trial so interesting. It's every sort of generation, we get sort of a trial that stands for the entire era, becomes like the entire era on trial. And that's kind of how I see this trial, because everything about her stands for the sort of the dreams and the flaws of this moment. Well, on that note, Rich, I think we're going to be having you back on the show, definitely back in airmail more and more as, as this trial unfolds. So we look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, it'd really be interesting if she actually testifies. That's like a big question mark, which won't be decided until the lawyers see how the trial's going. But um, that's her like sort of Hail Mary is to go out there and present herself because that's always been her great skill. And that's how she built her company. She's going to try to save herself the same way she got herself into this mess. I mean, she's either slightly nuts, which is not something that they're arguing, but she either either is like or she's the most gutsy person in the world. I mean, she's like running right into the wall here. And her hope is that she can blast through it somehow like she's done before. But I mean, just I think of being her and lying down to go to sleep every night, what you're thinking in your head, because most people in her situation would have taken a plea deal right at the beginning, because the odds are so stacked against her because she was so out front with her claims and everything is so public that she's got to sort of change her image right in front of everybody. It's a crazy thing she's trying to pull off. So I'm very curious to see what happens in this trial. Well, Rich, the piece this week is a great piece of analysis and contextualization. And we're excited to see where the trial goes and where you take us in your coverage of it. So thank you. Thanks. I'll be watching along with everybody else. Well, Michael, I think this Theranos trial is going to be entertainment for us enough. But or before we head out into the all too short weekend, perhaps you have something else you can recommend to keep us sufficiently distracted. I do. And I was reminded of it by the recent death over the weekend of Jean-Paul Belmondo, the great French actor who came to prominence in Breathless, the masterpiece of the new wave French cinema. But everyone knows him for that movie, of course. But there's a movie that not a lot of people know him for, and it came out in 1964, a few years later. It's called That Man from Rio. And if you haven't seen it, you can catch it on Amazon Prime or what's known as the Cohen Media Channel, which is a sort of subsidiary of that. And it was inspired by The Adventures of Tintin, but years later it actually went on to inspire Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is this stylish, hilarious spoof of James Bond films starring Belmondo, but also Catherine Deneuve's sister, Francois Dolac, who as you would remember, Ashley, was in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's so fun. It's so smartly done. It was so smartly done that it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay that year, even though it was in French. And it is a delight. I highly recommend it. It'll just make you forget about bad things for two hours. So beautiful, stylish, farce, and adventure all in one. Marvelous. Well, I've got one for you from 1958. And I actually can't take credit for this because this was a note. We have a company-wide Slack here at Airmail. And let me tell you, the general discussion channel can get a little feisty. So Ann Schneider, who runs our photo department, sent through a missive last week informing us that we all need to watch The Best of Everything, which is a primer for anyone, she tells us, working in publishing or interested in advanced bitchiness. Yes, Joan Crawford is in it. I don't know if it's a comedy. I guess it's a comedy. It's more of a drama. I don't know. There are funny moments. It's a pretty dark comedy. Fine. Okay. We're going to call it a dark dramedy. And it was a 1959 film 
Released by 20th Century Fox, it stars Hope Lang, Diane Barker, Susie Parker, Stephen Bloyd, Louis Jordan, Robert Evans, and Joan Crawford. And it follows the careers and private lives as well of three young ladies who share a small apartment in New York City and work together in a paperback publishing house. We won't tell you anything more, but romantic escapades ensue. There's backstabbing. There's horrible behavior. And it's everything we love in a movie. Have I talked your ear off, Michael? Not at all. I've missed you. We haven't seen each other in, I don't know, weeks, months, months, such a summer. But don't worry. New York City is springing back to life. I think I might go to the office tomorrow. So we'll hang out there. On that note, Michael, please release us. Read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.